grab one of those, grab a Bible. If you could please turn to uh, the second half of Acts chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. And uh, Acts, Acts 10 11 are really a hinge. So I realize uh, today is Palm Sunday, widely celebrated around the, the world in the churches, Palm Sunday. It's the day that commemorates Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the way to the cross. So really, Palm Sunday right now, there's churches all over the world celebrating the fact that Jesus went into Jerusalem to, to die on the cross and rise from the grave and to basically give us this good news, this gospel. Had he not set his face like stone towards Jerusalem and gone to his suffering and death to die for our sins and then, and then rose from the grave and eventually ascended into heaven, had that never happened, we wouldn't have a gospel. We wouldn't have good news. And so it's kind of cool how these, these things line up because now we're looking at a passage in the book of Acts which is all about not, not Jesus going into Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins and arise from the dead, but now we're looking at a passage that, that is the gospel spreading out from Jerusalem into the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. So it's like an inversion of Palm Sunday. So the same persecution that led to the suffering and death of Jesus the Messiah is the same persecution. In fact, it's the same people that drove out Christ's followers from Jerusalem and Judea into the surrounding regions and into the ends of the earth. And so Acts chapter 10 and 11, that's the story of Cornelius with Peter that we looked at on through what uh, Hannah read for us, which actually I appreciated that she included a little bit of context for us from earlier in chapter 11. But these two chapters in the book of Acts are, are a hinge and, and here's what they're hinging. They're a hinge geographically in the sense that the mission of the church is now moving out from Jerusalem and Judea to the city of Antioch and beyond. We're going to see it eventually, by the end of this thing, spread out to Rome and beyond, all through the Roman world. It's also a hinge demographically because the church was originally almost completely Jewish. And, and most of them being Hebraic Jews, Palestinian Jews, who were Aramaic-speaking Jews that lived in and around Jerusalem and Judea. That's how the church began. That was all of the apostles. But now we're seeing a demographic shift where this primarily Jewish church is seeing more and more Gentiles becoming followers of Christ. And then finally, it's a hinge biographically in the book of Acts because the focus is shifting from Peter, the great apostle, a leader among the apostles, to now Paul. This one uh, who was chosen, as we read about in, earlier in Acts, he, was, he came to faith uh, actively persecuting the church. In the midst of that, came to faith, and he would eventually become uh, what Scripture calls the apostle to the Gentiles, what he saw himself as, the apostle to the Gentiles. And now he's really going to be the one in the spotlight for the remainder of the book of Acts. So this is absolutely a hinge section. And I want to take it all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, because in Genesis, we see looking backwards through the cross, through the resurrection, we can look at God's promise to Abraham uh, in the uh, Abrahamic covenant. And we can see that Jesus, who was the seed of Abraham that was predicted from the very beginning in the Hebrew scriptures, that this seed of Abraham had finally come to bring blessing to both Jews and Gentiles. And so now we have, uh, as it says in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and it's also reflected in Genesis 12, but in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, after Abraham's willing to sacrifice his son, God says 
that, the, that he is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth in Genesis chapter 12 will be blessed. So Jesus echoes this, this all the nations of the earth language in his great commission that he gives to his followers. In Luke chapter 24, at the end of Luke's gospel, in 24, 47, Jesus tells them that repentance for the forgiveness, he says the scriptures said, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, this predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer and die and then rise from the dead on the third day. And then he goes on to say, this is what Jesus tells his followers, and then repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name, that is in the name of Jesus, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes like a seed pod that explodes and just sends the seeds of the gospel all throughout the known world. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the sequel to Luke's gospel, we saw this a couple months back, Jesus says to his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where it starts. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then, guys, you've probably heard this before if you've ever been around a church. Uh, but, but in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, probably the most famous Great Commission passage, Jesus famously says this. He says, all authority, this is after his death and resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, that's of all ethnic groups, of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, folks, these Great Commission passages, they're for every Christian. And I talk about this all the time. But they're not just for you as individuals. Do they apply to you as individuals? If you've bowed the knee to Christ, if you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, yes, it applies to you. But does it apply to you and me in an individual sense? Like the whole weight of the Great Commission is on my shoulders to somehow accomplish by myself? No, the Great Commission was given to the church, to this, this corporate unity of diverse members. And that's... Who gets to fulfill the Great Commission? It's us working together as members of the body of Christ with the God-given authority of Christ and in the power of His Holy Spirit. And so sometimes, though, I think we forget our role that we have to play in this. Now, I want to talk about this for a second as individuals. We can forget our role because sometimes we think that Jesus is either building up the church by Himself. Remember, He promised that in Matthew's Gospel. He said, I will build my church and sometimes I think we think, well, he's just going to do that without any sort of intermediary, without any sort of working through people. He's just going to somehow spiritually make it happen, you know, lead people to Christ. And we just we're not a part of that. He's just going to build up his church. Or we think that he's working through other Christians, probably Christians who have been to seminaries or Bible colleges, probably uh, Christians who have been Christians since they were kids, not those of us who came to faith later in life. Um, he's probably going to work through people that are much more spiritual than us, right? That's who he's going to fulfill the Great Commission through. That's another fallacy. That's another thing that we fall into that keeps us from understanding that we all have a role to play in the Great Commission. Folks, that's exactly what our spiritual enemy would have us to believe. Is that that Great Commission is either something God's just going to do, regardless of where we are and what we're doing and who we are, or it's something that other Christians, better Christians, are going are to be used in that way. 
But that, that enables us, that disables us, pardon me, and it keeps us from being useful for the Lord's purposes in fulfilling the Great Commission. Folks, this is the big idea for today. The Great Commission is a great collaboration between Christ and Christians, between us as Christians and between us with Christ as his church. So then we all have a part to play. We're going to look at that today. In today's passage, it's, it's a turning point where the gospel begins to go out to the nations. It's where you see the, the, the mission to the Gentiles in earnest begin in this section of Acts. And it shows us how the Lord works through many different people to build up his church and to bring more and more people into citizenship in his kingdom. And this morning, we're going to look at four different roles played by different Christians who, folks, they collaborate. They work together to build up the church. In Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30, we see people, first of all, and this makes sense logically, we first see people evangelizing, that is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So we see people evangelizing non-Christians, people that haven't yet found hope in Christ. But then we, we very quickly also see people encouraging, equipping, and exhorting new Christians. We see all of this happening in just a handful of verses. So let's jump into that. So first, we can collaborate with the Lord in evangelizing non-Christians. You cannot make anybody trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, right? Like that's not something that's in our power to do. But we are called to be witnesses. We are called to to. to when people look at the world and try and find hope and try and establish an identity for themselves and try and find some uh, ultimate purpose, when people try and find satisfaction, when they, when, they, when they look for peace in their circumstances or they try and find truth somewhere down inside themselves in that constantly subjective shifting reality of their heart and mind, when that runs dry, Jesus puts us in people's lives to share a sturdy hope. Right? That rock. Our hope is built on nothing less. Right? And so we get to share Christ with others, but we cannot make people believe what we believe about Jesus, about the gospel. That's important to understand. But look at this. Look at this collaborative effort in verses 19, 20, and 21. We're going to see the first part of that great commission being fulfilled in Antioch. Remember what Matthew's gospel said? It said, All authority has been given to me, heaven and earth. Therefore, go, go, go out. And do what? Lead people to faith in Christ. And, and, and as a result of that, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing that happen in these verses. Let's look at that, starting in verse 19. It says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Pause. If you weren't with us over the last week's Stephen, the first martyr of the church, this incredible, uh, he was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he came from a Greek cultural background, but he was Jewish, and he was Greek-speaking. But he was in Jerusalem, and he was preaching the gospel, and just like Christ, he was killed. He was killed by Saul, who would become Paul, okay? So there's this great persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem and Judea against the church, and it starts with the stoning of Stephen, Okay. So based on that persecution, we see people scattered all around outside of Jerusalem and Judea, and they go to Phoenicia, that's further up the coastline, about 75 miles of coastline north of Judea. They go to Cyprus, which is an island about 100 miles off the Mediterranean coast there. Uh, they go to um, Antioch, which is 
up around in, in uh, modern-day uh, Turkey, but uh, it's up above Phoenicia. It's kind of um, where, the, where the Mediterranean coastline starts to go west. That's where that is. I had a map, but I didn't include it today, unfortunately. But they were speaking the word to no one except to Jews only. You got to understand, like, they didn't understand the role Gentiles would play in the church. This was a strictly Jewish reality early on, okay? So they're just, they're Hellenistic Jews, and they're going and speaking to other Hellenistic Jews in these Hellenized cities. By the way, Hellenized just means it's Greek in culture and language, okay? So they're out sharing the gospel with the people that they know and that they have contacts with, probably. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, that's on the African coast, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well. Greeks there almost certainly means Gentiles, okay? These are, again, people from that Hellenistic culture that were not Jewish. So they, they start speaking to Gentiles as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the evangelization, again, that's just a big fancy term for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the evangelization of Gentiles at Antioch was a collaborative effort between Christ and Christians. Did you see that? And that's true of any evangelistic endeavor. Uh, anytime you're sharing your faith with someone, anytime you have uh, the amazing privilege to share your faith or to help someone better understand what Christianity is all about, help them understand the gospel, that is a collaborative effort between you and God, okay? God is working through you and empowering you with his Holy Spirit to be a witness for Jesus Christ. That's a collaborative effort anytime that's happening, whether you're Billy Graham talking to millions of people or whether you're just having a conversation in a coffee shop. That's a collaborative effort. And we bring the good news of Jesus. That's, that's how he gets the good news to people primarily, is by sending people, you and I, with that good news to share it with people. But Jesus brings about faith and repentance. It's God who's working in their hearts. Again, that gets back to what I was saying earlier. You cannot change a person's heart. You, it's, you don't have the power to do that. Nor is God expecting you to do that. What you have the power to do is to share your faith and trust that it's a collaborative effort and, effort and that God's been working their heart long before you ever got there, okay? All right. Uh, when the hand of the Lord is with us, folks, like it says in our passage, we can expect life transformation. That's what the power of Christ does. All right? And before we move on, I just want to point out a couple things here. They're just too juicy and rich to, to pass up here. But first, I want to point out that God used persecution in Judea to spread the gospel and grow the church. Please do not miss that. God used the incredible difficulties that these folks were facing, many of them Hellenistic Jews, and he used those incredible difficulties and that persecution. They were losing their lives. They were being imprisoned, and that drove them out. That scattered them to these other nations, and God used that persecution that they faced back there to get them out, out there to share the gospel with those people over there, okay? Don't miss that. So you know what this reminds me of? You guys know a little bit about our story over the last couple months. This reminds me that God can use the difficulties in our lives, whether it's house fires or whatever it is you're facing, God can use the difficulties, the hardships, even state-sponsored persecution to spread the gospel and to grow the church. Don't miss that. 
to, 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 to do that in the lives of the people that he's placed in our, in our lives who need to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus. You've got to understand, if they had stayed in Jerusalem and Judea, they would not be with the people in Antioch. I know that, that's super obvious, but it was through that persecution and scattering that they ended up in Antioch to have those conversations. Okay? Second thing, God used Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene to evangelize other Hellenistic Jews in these Hellenized cities like Antioch, but also Greek-speaking Gentiles in such places. And again, uh, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind uh, Rome and Alexandria. There was at least half a million people in Antioch, maybe up to 800,000 people, and something like 5 to 7% probably were Jewish, Hellenized Jews living there in Antioch. And Antioch was notorious for debauchery and all the worst stuff you can think of in the Greco-Roman context was happening at Antioch. It was just a pluralism, all these different gods being worshipped, but there were faithful Jewish people living in community there, uh, about 25,000, it seems, based on historians, okay? So this is where, this is the context God leads them to, and it makes a great base of operations for the mission of the church going out to the rest of the Mediterranean world. In other words, I want to point this out, God used the culture and language of these people to connect with people in other places. Do you think God is going to intentionally use your upbringing, your experiences, your culture, your language, the different languages you understand to, to, to bridge, to connect you with other people who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Absolutely he will. Okay? And he did that in our passage. And this is important to note too, it wasn't just the Palestinian Jews. It wasn't just the Hebraic Jews that, that, that made up that early church that the apostles and others were. They were Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jews. They lived in and around Judea. They started it, but it didn't, it didn't end with them. They didn't just go out and do all the gospel ministry all around the world. No, God, God passed the baton. He passed the torch to these Hellenistic Jews, and then they went out preaching the gospel. It's beautiful. Now, We can also collaborate. So we can collaborate in evangelizing non-Christians. We can also collaborate with the Lord in encouraging, equipping, and exhorting new Christians. And here we see the rest of the Great Commission being fulfilled at Antioch. And what's the rest of that famous passage in Matthew say? It says, baptizing them and don't just baptize them and go, good luck, you're a Christian now. No, it's baptizing and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Okay, (laughs) teaching them to obey. Not just teaching them what Christ commanded, teaching them to obey what Christ commanded. And that's what we're seeing fulfilled in the rest of our passage. The responsibility of teaching new Christians to obey Christ's commands, folks, it necessarily involves all these things, encouragement, equipping, teaching, exhorting, urging, making an urgent appeal to people. So let's look at each of those in our passage. So I want to start out looking at how the Lord uses spirit-filled people to encourage new Christians. When you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. You're never going to get more of the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, is our life surrendered to the Holy Spirit that we would be more and more under the the control of the Holy Spirit? And that's where you get into the issue of spirit filling. So when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it means we've submitted ourselves, that we're sensitive to God's Spirit, we're submitted, we're dependent upon Him, and thus we're very useful. He's using us. We become instruments in the hand of our, our wonderful Redeemer. Okay, so spirit-filled people are used by God to encourage new Christians. Look at 22 through 24. It says, The news about them reached the ears 
of the church in Jerusalem, probably also the leadership, the apostles and elders there. And they, again, probably the leadership in Jerusalem, sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now, I can't unpack everything we've already talked about with Barnabas, but he's, he's a clutch player here. And then in verse 23, it says, Then when Barnabas arrived and witnessed the grace of God, this unmerited favor of God on the Gentiles there in Antioch, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For, and it gives us this little description, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And then it says, as a result, and considerable numbers were added to the Lord. Folks, when it says encourage right there, that's uh, parakaleo is, is, the, is the Greek root word that we're dealing with there. But it means to, to urge strongly, to appeal to, to exhort, to urge, to encourage. That's the flavor we're talking about here. That's what he's doing with these new Christians, okay? So Barnabas, folks, was the perfect delegate to be sent to Antioch. I mean, you couldn't have picked a better guy to send up there and figure out what's going on, okay? He was a Hellenistic Jew. He was born in Cyprus, that island off the coast, the Mediterranean coast. Uh, So he grew up in a a Greek context, Jewish, but also Greek-speaking, Greek cultural context. So he understood what these Hellenistic Jews who were preaching the gospel up there, where they came from. In fact, he was born on the same island that some of these gospel preachers up in Antioch were born. He might have known them. I don't know. Maybe they were cousins. Who knows? But Barnabas also had a special relationship with the church in Jerusalem, with these Aramaic-speaking Hebraic Jews that, that constituted the early leadership of the church. He had a wonderful relationship with them that we can track all the way through Acts, but I can't get into all that now. But, but Barnabas, his name, he was also Joseph, uh, but, but Barnabas actually means son of encouragement. That's his name, son of encouragement, okay? So do you think he's a good encourager? It would be ironic if he wasn't. It would be ironic if he's just a total grump and he's just like, whatever, you know, like Eeyore or something, like probably going to rain, guys. Uh, He wasn't. He was an incredible encourager. And as it says in our passage, he was a good, faithful, spirit-filled man, and he used his spiritual gifts, particularly the spiritual gift of encouragement, to encourage these new Christians, He's a gifted, spirit-filled man using his gift of encouragement to encourage these new Christians. And specifically, what is he encouraging them? Is he just going, hey, buddy, hang in there. You're great. You're doing great. No, he specifically encourages them to persevere, to endure in this new relationship they have with Christ. In other words, to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, with purpose of heart. That's what he's encouraging them to do because it wasn't easy. It's a lot easier to be a Christian in our context, okay? It was not easy to, whether Jew or Gentile, to become a Christian back then was not an easy thing. And Barnabas also had a part to play in our next point, uh, which is the Lord uses spirit-filled people to equip new Christians. Let's look at that. Later on in Acts, uh, Luke tells us, and this is in the beginning of Acts chapter 13, Luke places Barnabas in this group called the prophets and teachers in Antioch. So he wasn't just an encourager. Barnabas was also equipping the saints there at Antioch. But can I tell you that his greatest single contribution to the believers in Antioch, he did not do, in a sense. His greatest single contribution to this church was to recognize that he couldn't handle the equipping himself. This is humbling. Uh, And so he went off to get a better teacher, a better equipper. 
He went off just right down the coastline to Tarsus, where he knew 10 years earlier, the guy that he had vouched for to the leadership in Jerusalem, the, the fanatical Pharisee that had been persecuting the church and stoning Stephen, this guy Saul, who he had vouched for and, and brought into fellowship in the church of Jerusalem, who had gone back home to Tarsus, where he was from, a decade earlier, he's like, you know, I, I know a guy. And he travels up the coastline to Tarsus and he tracks down Saul. Then he brings him back to Antioch to equip the church at Antioch. And that's one of the greatest things he ever did for that church. And he didn't even do it. It was what Paul did. But it was him connecting Saul, Paul, with that church. I think that's amazing. All right. Uh, Look at verses 25 and 26. It says, And he, that is Barnabas, left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year... They met with the church and taught considerable numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Because again, they're Jews and Gentiles. They didn't know what to call them. (laughs) They're like, you guys are all together now. This is weird. Like, we don't know what to do with this. So they probably, by outsiders, were first called Christians, which is taking Christ or Messiah, the the, the Greek term for the, the anointed one of God from the Hebrew scriptures. And then they stuck a Latin ending on it, Ionis, and and. Christianus and Christians, and that's where we are. And so that probably started as like something that the outsiders, as their family members were trusting in Jesus or their neighbors or whatever, they're probably like, what do we call these people? Well, let's call them Christians, you know, followers of Christ or they belong to Christ. So um, I love these two verses, not because of what I just said, but because Barnabas is a connector. Like I love connecting people together, right? It's, it's, just, it's something I, I love to do, but it's, I, I, I love watching Barnabas. It's almost like you can get into his mind here. You see, he had vouched for Paul, as I said, a decade earlier, and he remembered how great of a teacher, how well Paul understood the Hebrew scriptures in unpacking them, even from the very get-go of becoming a Christian. And so he wants to connect Paul with these, these new believers. And, and again, he goes up Tarsus. Tarsus is just right down the coastline. He grabs him. He brings him back. And they end up teaching considerable numbers over an entire year. This was not a once-a-week Bible study for an hour, okay? This is people that have lost their inheritance, lost their businesses, lost just about everything. They're sticking together as a family, as a church there in Antioch. And they have tons of time to grow and be equipped. And they did that for a year with these people. And they were discipling and they were getting them established in their faith. But these new Christians needed more than just teaching. They didn't just need information. They just needed like a systematic theology book handed to them. What did they need? They needed to put that teaching into practice. And that leads to our last point, which is that the Lord uses spirit-filled people to exhort new Christians to live out their faith with love and good deeds. Can I just say that again? Exhortation, encouragement, these things can get fuzzy. But when you're, when you're encouraging someone in their relationship with Christ, that's what Barnabas was doing. But now we're talking about exhorting people in their relationships with others, i.e. encouraging, appealing to people, exhorting people to actually live out what they say they believe in palpable, tangible, practical acts of love and service, benevolence and self-sacrifice for other believers in the church. And so that's what they're being exhorted to in our last point to live out their faith with love and good deeds. And in the case of Antioch, the Lord used prophets. Look at verses 27 through 30. It says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit, the Spirit was speaking through him as a prophet, 
that there would definitely be a severe famine all over the world, all over the Roman world in this context. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Claudius was emperor, and there was back-to-back-to-back-to-back famines all around the Mediterranean basin, okay, the Mediterranean rim. And that's historically, you know, the fact. Um, So this is like the early 40s A.D., okay? And to the extent that any of the disciples there in Antioch had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did this, sending it with Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now, um, I'm not going to go into, I I had a quote here from Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. But basically, if you go to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about the gift of prophecy. And he talks about what that was for in the early church. And like all other spiritual gifts... It wasn't just to make you feel excited that you know what your gifting is, right? Not just so you can know your Enneagram number, right? It's so you can actually work through that gifting to bless other people in the church, all right? So it's not just about personal fulfillment knowing, oh, I've got the gift of hospitality. It's actually to be hospitable to people, all right? And so prophecy was the same way. In in, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, uh, He who prophesies speaks to men for their upbuilding, men and women, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And later on, he says, he who prophesies edifies the church. But, but prophets who are operating in this capacity in the early church spoke directly from the Lord, and they often foretold future events. Agabus does that twice in the book of Acts. And this is what we see in verse 28, when Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there would be a famine all over the Roman world, and in particular, that famine was going to fall heavy on Judea, okay? So, so these new Gentile Christians in Antioch, they actually put their love into action by sending contributions to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, who they had never met before, and it was probably in response to the exhortation of the prophets and the leaders like Barnabas. Do you remember the first, one of the first things Barnabas did when he became a Christian? He sold some land and he took the proceeds and he laid it at the feet of the apostles so it could be distributed to anyone in the church that had financial material needs. So what a great guy to be there with those prophets exhorting the church to these palpable, tangible acts of love. In all of this, we see that the Great Commission is a great collaboration and we can play our part by doing any or all of these things, evangelizing non-Christians or by encouraging, equipping, or exhorting new Christians. Folks, Kevin Reichley is the best first, kinder, first, second grade, is that what we got? First, second grade flag football coach I've ever seen. And Brian Logering and I have the absolute privilege of being, I think Brian's the assistant coach and I'm the assistant to the assistant coach. For our t- Is it the other way around? I don't know. I don't get paid very much, do you? I don't. I think, I think it's probably volunteer. Um, but Kevin's coaching our team. Brantner's on it. Ryder's on it. Jude's on it. And it's been really fun. But uh, one of the things that he's intentionally doing, we talked about it uh, yesterday, is that he's rotating the boys through all these different positions so they can get a lot of experience on the field playing different positions on offense and defense. And this is the first time a lot of them have ever played football. They're really just getting a taste for the game. And they're really enjoying it. But he, he's not pigeonholing them. He's not saying, that kid's got a good arm. He's always going to do this. So that kid runs really fast. He's always going to do this. He's intentionally, especially in these early games, rotating them around the field and not pigeonholing them based on their strengths and weaknesses, but instead choosing to use the boys in important positions that could make or break the game 
despite their previous experience or natural abilities. Do you understand what we're doing here? It's not about just crushing the other team, that it's really about giving them the, all these different experiences, regardless of their strengths and weaknesses and natural abilities. And folks, I think in the same way, the scripture doesn't pigeonhole us as Christians into playing one particular role in the Great Commission. I think sometimes we think about it like that. I'm this cog in the big machine. I do this thing and that's all I do. No, it doesn't pigeonhole us. Apostles would prophesy. Prophets would teach. Encouragers like Barnabas would also equip believers. And teachers like Paul were also constantly evangelizing and exhorting and encouraging. And the same is true for us, even if we're not apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. As Christians, the same holds true. We are all called to do all of these things we're talking about today at different times, in different ways, in the context of different people. I mean, think about what Paul writes to all the members of the Thessalonian church, not just to those people doing that one thing. All the members, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Folks, we all have many parts to play in the lives of others. We all have different contexts and relationships and things. If we're filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, but folks, that requires spiritual sensitivity and humble-hearted submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise you, He will use us in all these different ways. So here's the application for today. How might the Lord use you? How might the Lord use me to further His plans and purposes in the lives of the people that He has sovereignly, intentionally, purposefully placed in our lives along our path? How might he use us in these ways? What role might we play in sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus with a hopeless person that God has intentionally put in your office, in the cubicle next to you, in the house for sale, you know, across the street, whatever. Or or what role might we play in the equipping of the saints for ministry in the building up of the church through encouragement and exhortation to love one another and serve one another? Folks, the Great Commission is a great collaboration between Christ and His church, and we all have parts to play, whether that's evangelism or encouraging, equipping, or exhorting new Christians so that they will learn to obey all that Christ has commanded. And folks, the Great Commission is also a collaboration between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Just look at our passage. Barnabas witnessed the grace of God And the hand of the Lord Jesus was with them so that a large number believed and turned to the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit fills men like Barnabas and Agabus so that they could encourage and exhort these new Gentile brothers and sisters. And I'll just close with one of my favorite verses from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And I think it demonstrates well how the Great Commission is a collaborative effort between God and man and between the members of the church, us as Christians. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Somebody quoted it to me this week. He says, I, Paul, planted, that is, I planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos, this really great young Hellenistic uh, preacher out of Alexandria, uh, Apollos watered that seed, but God gave the growth. And folks, we would all do well to reflect on just that short, simple passage and how it applies to us in the church. Uh, next week is Easter. We're going to have a special Easter message. And then in two weeks, we're going to be back in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at how persecution cannot stop the spread of the gospel. And we're going to look at that in two weeks after Easter.